If you have your copies of God's Word, turn with me to Romans chapter 16. We are beginning the last chapter after a long and good trek through the book of Romans and now coming to this final chapter of one of, if not the greatest letter written in the history of mankind. We'll be reading verses 1 through 16 this evening. You can find that on page 950 of your pew Bibles. So give your attention now to the reading of the Word of God from Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kinkriai, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add its blessing upon its preaching. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray now that the words of my mouth, that the meditation of all of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, that we may look to you through this text as our rock and our redeemer. Fill us now with your spirit so that we may understand your word and apply it to our lives. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we stand less than a month away from the beginning of a new year, which means in the context of the church, we stand less than a month away from the beginning of all of our read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year schedules. This is a really wonderful practice. I would highly commend it to you. I've made it a personal practice of mine for some time now, and if you have any questions or need any recommendations, I'm happy to give those to you or even suggest schedules and programs But I think oftentimes, if we're honest, when it comes to our read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year aspirations is we tend to reach certain points in the Bible where we get a little bogged down, the the read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year killers. Maybe you're doing really well, and it's a really sweet time, and you really feel yourself growing in the knowledge of the Scriptures, and then you hit certain passages that just seem like long lists that aren't quite clear how they're relevant to your immediate life. How do I apply this? Why is this even here? You reach passages like First Chronicles and you just reach chapter after chapter after chapter of just lists and lists of names and you just think, what do I do with this? Why is this even here? 
And I think in many ways, Romans 16 can feel like one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year killers. I don't think it's a common culprit for that sort of thing, but at the same time, it feels like one of those kinds of passages, like a First Chronicles in the first few chapters, and we just see Paul listing off name after name after name, and it almost gets monotonous. Greet this person, greet that person, greet this person with a Greek name I can't pronounce, and that person with a Greek name I can't pronounce. What do we do with texts like these? We're We're tempted, I think, in a couple of ways. We're tempted to maybe either just skip over them, go on to the good stuff that's after this. Let me get to the really meat of the letter or what the ending he has here. Or maybe if we do actually read it, at best we kind of skim across it so that we can just kind of get through it because we feel bad about skipping a passage in the Bible. And if we succumb to either of those temptations, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. God does not waste words in his word. There are no vain chapters of the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This passage is useful is good, is here for our edification, for our sanctification and our life as pilgrims in this world as we march toward the heavenly city. The first 15 chapters of Romans were like that, and the 16th chapter, including these 16 verses, are like that. Now, Paul isn't making any explicit argument here. It is a standard letter greeting that comes at the end of this letter. But there is a general principle that he's exemplifying here that's being teased out for our sanctification. That is the principle that a love for Jesus Christ produces a love for the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is lots of greetings and things going on here that we may not understand, but underlying it all, the foundation of this greeting passage that comes out in these 16 verses is a love for Christ that results in a love for the church of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in four points tonight. The first point I want us to note is simply this, that the root of love for others is a love for Jesus Christ. Or to put it a little differently, you can't truly love other people unless you first love Jesus Christ above all things. This point is a little counterintuitive at first. If we're asking, well, how do I truly love someone? Our initial reaction is, of course, to say, well, obviously I need to, to love that person. I need to focus on them. I need to think about them. I need to look to them first and foremost above myself, but if we think in that way, we're actually going to do ourselves a disservice. You can't truly love someone else unless you first love Jesus Christ. When I was in high school, I remember my youth pastor telling me about a little bedtime ritual that he would have with his his children. He had three young daughters at the time. They were very little, and he had a little bedtime ritual he would do with them on occasion where after he tucked them in, he would tell them he loved them, and they would say, I love you too, Daddy. And, and then he would say to them, he would ask them, and who does Daddy love the most? And his little girls, they would smile, and they would happily say, Mommy. <laughs> Which is true. On a human level, that was the person he loved the most. It was not his little girls, it was his wife. 
You see, the way that he loved his daughters, the way he truly loved his children, was by not loving them the most. It was by loving his wife the most. That gave his children peace, security, joy, a foundation for their lives, knowing that their father had his deepest love reserved for his bride. And in the same way, we can't truly as we are called to do, as we must do, love other people unless we prioritize our loves in the way that Scripture tells us to prioritize our loves, which is loving Christ first and foremost above all things. Just consider where this greeting section stands in the letter to the Romans. It's at the very end of the letter. Now, of course, On the one hand, Paul is just following ancient letter writing formats. It's very standard in writing a letter in the first century, uh, ancient Near East, where Paul is to put all the greetings at the end of a letter. And yet at the same time, Paul doesn't waste formats. He doesn't waste words. He imbues them with Christian content and with theology. He does it with his greetings. He does this with his conclusions and his closing greetings as well. Paul is doing this intentionally. He has just finished spending 15 chapters, as it were, expounding the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, exulting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's places like chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, where Paul, after talking about the mysteries of the gospel and all that God has done for his people, breaks out into doxology. He can't contain himself just about. You see his love for Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ all throughout this letter. And it's only then, only flowing out of that love for Jesus Christ that he has in Christ and his gospel, that he then overflows in his love by name for the people of the church of Rome. The gospel and the Christ of the gospel is what leads to an overflow of love for the people of Christ with whom we are united in the gospel. And even when Paul does get to naming people and sending them greetings, his language is shot through with the language of Jesus Christ. Ten times in this passage, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, in Christ or in the Lord. And usually in Paul's letters, when you see that phrase, in Christ or in the Lord, he's talking about union with Christ. But here, he's greeting people in the Lord or in Christ Jesus. He is, in one way, making a slightly theological statement. He is referring to the idea of union with Christ, the fact that we have union with Christ, the fact that these people he's greeting have union with Christ. And at the same time, he's reminding them that the reason he loves them, the reason they're united, isn't just because of a human love for one another. There's something deeper. There's something more basic, more foundational to why Paul is greeting these people. And it's the bond of union that they share, not with each other first and foremost, but in Jesus Christ. It is union with Christ and the communion that comes out of that union that gives Paul a love for these other Roman Christians who are also united in Christ. Eight times in this passage, 
On top of union with Christ language, Paul commends and greets his fellow Roman believers for their Christian labors, their gospel work. He talks about people who have worked heartily in the Lord, his co-workers in the Lord. He's not commending them for any kind of just ordinary secular business. He's not just saying, well, you're a really hard worker and I appreciate that about you. That's not what he's saying here. No, he's commending gospel labors. But in commending them for their gospel labors and in focusing on that kind of work that they do, what he's focusing on and really showing us is that his greatest love and the thing he appreciates most deeply are those things done not for the sake of him, even though he appreciates their co-laboring, not for them, not for the people around them. No, the thing that he appreciates most are the things that are done for the sake of of Christ. Why is that? It is because of a love for Christ. If you want to truly love others, you first and foremost must love Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ above all other things? Christ must be the center of our life. Christ must be the center of our focus. Christ must be the one around whom our entire lives are oriented. The greatest object of our affections, the highest thought we can have, the most wonderful, glorious thing in our minds and in our hearts, the object of our worship, it must first and foremost be Jesus Christ. The gospel, before it does anything else, gives us a love for Jesus Christ. Now, when we say that the love of Christ is the root of love for others, we are not again saying that Christ only cares about us loving him. Jesus doesn't draw us to himself so that he can draw us only to himself. No, when he draws us to himself, he puts us into a community with other believers. He puts us into other places. That's our second point tonight. Our second point tonight is that the gospel of Jesus Christ puts us into the church, which is the community of Christ. Now, this is a point that we've seen a couple weeks ago in chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. We saw that the Apostle Paul in his preaching ministry and missionary activities, yes, he goes and he makes converts and he preaches the gospel and the implications of the gospel. But then what he does is he founds churches and he organizes these converts into churches, into concrete instantiations, into examples, into existences of the community, of the body of Jesus Christ. And here in Romans 16, we get a little bit more concrete example of exactly what that looks like, what it looks like to be put into the church of Jesus Christ. In these 16 verses, we find what appear to be about five different house churches. Now, in the first century, they didn't have church buildings yet. That's not a development until about the third, maybe even into the fourth centuries. Christians didn't quite commonly have their own buildings for gathering like we have the the joy and the privilege of having today here in our own congregation. So usually, in the first century, if the Christians were getting together for worship, they would gather in homes. They would gather in the houses, the larger homes usually, of wealthier believers who could host Christian meetings for worship. Some scholars estimate that larger homes could have held up to 50 to 75 people. There's abouts. 
And what we find here is about at least maybe five of those kinds of house churches. Verse 5, Paul says to greet the church in their house, referring back to verse 3, Prisca and Aquila, who are companions of Paul, whom he knew personally. So we see that they have a house church. Verses 10 and 11, he says, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Later in verse 11, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Now, these are individual households. In the ancient Roman world, a household was, yes, of course, a nuclear family, but it could also consist, especially in wealthier households, of a number of extended family members, and especially a quite a few number of servants. It doesn't necessarily mean that Aristobulus and Narcissus who are the namesake of these households, are themselves believers. But what appears to be the case here is that each of their large households had a number of believers within them that appear to be individual house churches. We see the same thing again in verses 14 and 15. Paul names two different groups of people who seem to be distinct in his mind, who seem to gather together in some particular way. So what we find from what this greeting section tells us is that in the first century, in the Roman church, the way believers communed with one another is by gathering in local congregations. Congregations that were small enough for people to be able to meet in one place and for people to be able to know each other and know each other by name. And we see that Paul is greeting each one of them. There weren't just a bunch of free-floating Christians around the city of Rome. No, they were all associated together in individual congregations. What's more is that these individual congregations associated with each other. What we see here is that the Apostle Paul understands that, yes, there are individual gatherings of house churches in the Roman church, But don't forget that all throughout this letter, Paul has been addressing the church in Rome as if it is one church, as if it is one body of believers. And the only way that the Apostle Paul can do that is if these local congregations didn't view themselves as little islands sitting around the city of Rome, but as an interconnected network of churches, of individual congregations that provided support, that provided accountability, that they knew each other, they prayed for each other, they were associated with each other, they were in fellowship with one another. They didn't just keep to themselves, but they looked to the other churches around them in the city of Rome. This isn't just an isolated Roman incident either. The Apostle Paul at the very end of this passage, verse 16, says, all the churches of Christ greet you. In other words, all the churches east of Rome with whom Paul had fellowship, whom he knew and represented. And again, the only way that the Apostle Paul can truthfully say, all the churches of Christ greet you, is if there is a true sense of unity amongst all those individual churches and congregations. Again, they don't see themselves as isolated groups of Christians who are just trying to get through the world on their own. No, they're connected with other congregations. As an aside, uh, this is part of the reason we're Presbyterian. We believe, based on passages such as this, that to have churches that are interconnected with one another, that hold each other accountable, that support each other, that pray for one another, that that work together in the gospel, that this isn't just a, a good idea, this isn't just a practical thing. No, this is what the Bible 
tells us that when Jesus established the church, he established it so that, yes, there were individual churches, but that they united together in common cause and mutual support and accountability as a single body of Christ. It's part of the reason that we are associated in what is called a presbytery and a local group of other Presbyterian churches and hold each other accountable and support one another. Now that's an aside, but the main point to notice here from this text is that when Jesus touches the hearts of believers in the church of Rome, that he doesn't leave them alone, he doesn't leave them to themselves, he doesn't save them so that they can get on with their nice, easy, private lives. No, he brings them into the community of the church, not the generic church universal, but actual real concrete congregations of believers. And he doesn't do that in vain. Jesus doesn't bring people into the church for no reason at all. No, he puts us into the church because he means for us to live within the church and to dedicate ourselves to the life of the church. People of God, brothers and sisters, dedicate yourselves to the life of the church. Dedicate yourself to the place that God has put you here at Sovereign Grace. Take advantage of morning and evening worship as you're already doing tonight. That's a commendable thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's a beautiful thing. That's living in the way that God intended us to live. When you see social events and things that are popping up around the life of the church, insofar as it's possible, take advantage of those things. We've got lots of programs and things coming up and fellowship opportunities in the next couple of weeks. Go to those. Get to know people. Let them get to know you. God didn't intend for you to live on an island, and he didn't have you join Sovereign Grace Presbyterian Church for no reason. He meant for you to really be a true, living, breathing, connected member of a church. Dedicate yourself to the life of the church. Why? Because the love for Jesus Christ that is the root of all loves doesn't just leave us alone. No, it puts us into the church. This brings us to our third point. Not only does Jesus, through his gospel, put us into the church, but thirdly, the gospel gives us a love for the church, a true blue love for the church. We see this all throughout this greeting section. Paul has a particular affection, a love for the church above all other things. Now, we are called as believers to have a general love for all people. Make no mistake about that. All people are made in the image of God and as such deserve to be treated with dignity, with love, with respect. But there is a particular kind of love that the people of God have for the other people of God. Married men and women, you know in this room, if you have a man who's married, that there's a sense in which he needs to show love in a general way to all women that he encounters in his life. That's just basic courtesy, basic human dignity. But there's a sense in which a man 
has a love for his wife that he doesn't have for anybody else, for any other woman in the world. It's a particular kind of love that he is called to share with his wife that he doesn't share with any other woman in the world. In fact, it would be a grave sin for him to do so in a violation of the seventh commandment. And in the same way, there is a particular kind of love that we have been called to have for the people of God. Jesus Christ himself calls the church his bride. And he calls it his bride in part because he loves his church more than he loves those outside of his church. Not that we are called to show a hatred for those outside the church. No, there is a true genuine love for those outside the church. But there's a particular love that we have for the church, for the people of God that is produced by the gospel of God. Paul himself exemplifies this in the book of Romans. Chapter 9, for instance, he opens chapter 9 in his three-chapter discourse on the place of the Jews in redemptive history by noting the intense love and feeling he had for his Jewish people. He sees all these Jews around him who aren't accepting the gospel of Christ. They're rejecting Christ. And he even goes so far as to say that I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, My people according to the flesh. In other words, Paul has a strong love for those who are culturally, ethnically his people. He is a Jew. These are also Jews. And it's appropriate. It's a good thing for him to have a strong love for them. And yet, even as closely connected and as much as he loves his fellow Jewish people, he still reserves his greatest love, his most affectionate language, not for them, but for the church of Jesus Christ. It's not until we get to chapter 16 when he's directly addressing the church that he uses deep, affectionate language. Four times he uses the phrase, beloved. Greet these beloved people. You can feel the affection, the love that he has for these Roman Christians. Three times he uses intimate family language. He calls Phoebe, verse 1, a sister. Verse 13, he refers to the mother of Rufus as a mother to him as well. And then later on in verse 14, when he addresses a syncretist flag on Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, he says to greet also the brothers who are with them. There is a love a particular affection that Paul has for the people of God that he doesn't have for anybody else. And that's a good thing. That's an appropriate thing. We see this love come out in a number of other ways. The mere fact that Paul names so many people shows his love for these people. There's something significant, something loving about knowing someone's name. If you know someone's name, it shows that you care about that person. The fact that you took the time to remember their name shows that you've been thinking about them. Maybe you've even been praying for them. People often brighten up if you can remember their name. There's something significant and loving about knowing somebody's name. In family contexts, oftentimes, many families, we have different names, nicknames for each other, terms of endearment that signify the fact that we love each other, these 
family nicknames that no one outside the family knows necessarily, or even if they do know it, they don't use it. Why? Because there's a particular affection associated with that name. Names show love. Knowing someone's name shows you care about them. And Paul takes the time, even though he's never been to the Church of Rome, many of these people, although we know some of them in person, such as Prisca and Aquila from verse 3, we know from Acts 18 that Paul knows them personally, that he spent many years living and working with them. He's also shown us all throughout this letter that he's never been to Rome. He said that over and over again. He doesn't know these people. He desires to be with them, to know them face to face. And yet he knows simply by reputation and the good report he's received of the Church of Rome, their names. He lists 26 different names in this passage. And in doing so, shows how much he truly cares about the Church of Rome. Not only that, he sends them greetings. He greets these people. There's something loving about a greeting. Yes, we use greetings often just as a a matter of course, a formality, good morning, good evening, how are you, that kind of thing. But there's something particularly loving about sending a greeting in a letter. Paul's under no obligation to have a formal greeting, a formal interaction with these Roman Christians. He's writing a letter to them. Most of these people he doesn't know. You might even infer that they probably shouldn't have expected someone who's never been to their city, who's never even been to Rome or what's now Italy. They shouldn't really expect him to know them, and yet he sends greetings, and he knows their names, and he says, greet these people. Many of us have had the experience, I'm sure, of talking to someone and realizing that, oh, you have a mutual acquaintance, and maybe the other person you're talking to knows them better. And and what do you do in that moment? Sometimes you say, oh, tell them I said hello. Or maybe you even use the phrase, oh, send my love to them. There's something loving. There's something caring about sending a greeting to somebody all throughout this passage. From the language Paul uses to the mere fact that he's naming these people, that he's greeting these people, shows that the Apostle Paul has a great affection, a great love for the church of Rome. The gospel that has taken hold of his heart, that has put him and these Roman Christians into the Christian church, has produced a love for these people. People of God, Paul didn't just tolerate the other Christians in his life. He didn't just like them, he loved them. He loved the people in his world. He loved the church of Jesus Christ. We are called to not just be in the church, to not just tolerate the church, the specific church where we are. No, we've been called to love and serve that church. So we've seen tonight that the root of, of love for others is a love for Christ, that the gospel of Christ puts us into the church, that it thirdly creates a love for that church. And lastly, I want us to notice here tonight in this passage that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only gives us a love for the church, but that it brings forth expressions of love, expressions of love. I was having a conversation some time ago with a seasoned pastor who was recalling a particular time in his ministry when he was really at odds with a number of members in his church, and they were constantly at heads. It was a terrible situation, and uh, just just wasn't a good time, and he was very frustrated, and 
he told me that he was having a conversation with his wife, and his wife asked him, well, do you love these people? And he said, well, yes, of course I love these people. You know, they're, they're my congregation. And then she responded, how do they know that you love them? And I think we would do well to ask the same question to ourselves and ask it regularly. We may say that we love others around us, but how do they know that we love them? Biblical love is not a silent love. Biblical love is not hidden love. Biblical love is an expressed love. We have the cultural image of the stereotypical man who tells his wife on his wedding day, I love you, and if anything changes over the years, I'll let you know. That's not a biblical view of love. There's there's no room for that kind of love in the church of Jesus Christ. True love expresses itself. There's two ways we see expresses itself. First of all, true biblical, biblical love expresses itself in words. Paul, all throughout this passage, is leaving no question to the Roman Christians about how he feels about them, about his relationship toward them. He loves them. He calls them beloved. The Greek word that's translated in our passage, beloved, is agapetos, which has in its root that Greek word agape, love. They are lovely people to Paul. He's expressing his love in that intimate familial language. He's greeting them. He's naming them. The point here is that Paul loves these people and he lets them know it. Have you told the other people around you in your life, the other believers, even here at Sovereign Grace, that you love them? Do they know it? Have you expressed it? Maybe there's someone in the church that you've seen working very hard for the Lord Jesus Christ that you've really seen ministering and you've noticed it. Tell them. Let them know that. Encourage them. And in doing so, you will let them know that you love them, that you really, truly care about them. True love is an expressed love in words. We see also here that real biblical love And expressed love expresses itself not just in words, but in deeds. Take as an example of this the first person that Paul mentions in this passage, which is Phoebe. Verses 1 and 2, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, Kenkriai, this was a city that was closely associated with the Greek city of Corinth, which was a very important commercial center, a port city. And it appears from what Paul's saying here that Phoebe lived at Kenkriai and that she worked within the church at Kenkriai. But what's more, Paul isn't just noting Phoebe uh, for any old reason just because uh, she's a good co-worker of his or anything like that. No, first of all, he commends Phoebe. Now, the fact that he commends her suggests that Phoebe's actually the person who's carrying this letter to the Roman church. 
It was very ordinary in the ancient world for a letter to end with a commendation of the letter carrier. It was a way of reassuring the recipients of the letter, you can trust this person, this is a good person, I know them. And so when Paul's commending Phoebe to them and telling them, meet her needs, this tells us that she's actually the one carrying this letter to the Roman church. So in the mere fact that Paul commends Phoebe to them, we already see her love for Paul and for the church, and yes, even for the Roman Christians, worked out in action. She's carrying this letter to the Roman church. But it goes even further than that. Paul calls her a servant of the church at Cancreae. In other words, she's doing things. She's working out her love for the church at Cancreae. Now, the particular way that she's doing that. While it's not precisely given here, we do have hints of it. In verse 2, Paul says that Phoebe has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, in the ancient Near East, in the Roman world, the idea of patronage, a patron was someone who was a wealthy individual who used their wealth in a variety of ways for the public good. Often patrons would build large public buildings or host citywide festivals or provide hospitality, especially the patronesses, the women would provide hospitality and extensive hospitality for important travelers and visitors to different cities. And so when Paul says that she's a patron, this tells us that Phoebe's probably a wealthy individual. But when he says that she's a patron of many, that she's a servant of the church at Kinkriai, this tells us that she's probably a patron of the church at Kinkriai. In other words, she's giving generously out of the generous means God has given her to the church. She's very likely giving extensive hospitality to other believers in the city of Kinkriai and other believers who pass through Kinkriai. We can't know exactly what it is that Phoebe is doing, but the main point to note here is that when Paul commends Phoebe, he commends her for what she does, for her expressed love in action. Phoebe doesn't just think that she loves the church She doesn't just say that she loves the church. No, she acts out that love for the church. And you don't have to be a rich Phoebe, a patron, to act out your love for others and for the church. Although that may be the calling of some to give generously and to give lavishly toward the church. Because of the generous giving of of many believers that we can even be in this building right here tonight. But love expressed in action comes in a variety of other forms. It comes sometimes in a form of radical self-sacrifice. We see here in verse 7 that Andronicus and Junia went to prison for the sake of the gospel. Paul calls them my fellow prisoners. In other words, fellow prisoners in his gospel cause. It could be simple things like acts of care and hospitality. Verse 13, when Paul commends Rufus's mother, he says, she's been a mother to me as well. Not that she's his literal biological mother, but that she acts motherly toward him. She cared for him. She showed him hospitality. She showed him love and care. There's all kinds of ways that we can express our love in action to others. It can be even as simple as a text message saying, I'm praying for you. I'm ca- I, I care about you. I'm thinking about you. I hope you're doing well and that the Lord's encouraging you today. 
Whatever it may be, however God has equipped you to love others, he expects us to be gripped by a love for Christ. And out of that love, to dedicate ourselves to the church, to love that church, and to allow that love for Jesus Christ that issues for us in the love of the church to pour over in words and acts of love. For Jesus first, and for those around us. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you have touched us with the love of Christ, and so it is our prayer that that love would issue forth now by your Spirit and your grace in love for others. Lord, make us a people who love the bride of Christ just as Christ loves his bride. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Please stand to receive the benediction. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.